Welcome to the Fallon Forum. That's Brother Trucker, folks. That's uh, their tune downtown, and we're kicking off this conversation here, broadcasting from the uh, studio of La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa. I want to take a second to give a quick shout-out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's uh, my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've also got a wonderful catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been taking care of creatures large and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines between Locust and Grand. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at uh, excellent prices with very friendly, helpful, and, uh, and entertaining service. Okay, so welcome to our program. Later today, we're going to talk about uh, Trump's wall and the need to tear down a different wall that Trump has built already. And we'll talk also about a victory for climate warriors in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, where the pipeline company sued and lost. This is good news. We'll also talk on the bad news front about insect populations in steep decline and the cause for alarm around that development. And we'll take a look at the New York Times story that's advising that it's time for us to panic on climate change. But first, I want to welcome Lee Camp to the program. Lee Camp is a longtime astute commentator on all matters of uh, political truth and importance. And I, I was impressed with some of his uh, observations about Venezuela, which, of course, is getting a lot of news and a lot of hype. Lee, welcome to the show. Tell me. Yeah. Hey, so uh, Venezuela, you know, the official story is evil government. We must overthrow. We must secure democracy for these poor, impoverished, trodden-down people. I bet you see it a little differently. Oh, my God. It's so ridiculous. I mean, you know, let's just begin with the fact that the U.S. should ever have any say in whether another country should be toppled or taken over. I mean, do we want Venezuela to end up like all of our wonderful past interventions, uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, you know, you could go down the list of uh, Latin America, uh, just about every country we topple or take over or intervene ends up worse than before. So the idea that we want to help the people is just laughable. But luckily, we don't have to surmise as to the real reasons that the U.S. wants to get involved in Venezuela, because our lovely national security advisor, John Bolton, who, uh, you know, has a, has a resume that makes Joseph Mangala blush, uh, he, <laughs> he said on Fox News like a week ago that we want to go into Venezuela to get the oil. He literally just, I mean, it, it's like the mask has come off. The charade is over. No longer do we pretend. Uh, I mean, they do a little bit, but not as much. Oh, we got to help the people. And now they just say, oh, we want the oil. And, you know, we hate having a, a socialist country down there. And they've dropped the dollar, which is another thing that frustrates us. Iraq dropped the dollar before we invaded. Syria dropped the dollar. Libya was talking about a, a gold standard in, uh, in Africa. So, yeah, those, those things that upset us are clearly the real reasons we want to invade Venezuela. And uh, I don't know if you want to get into who this guy, Juan Guaido, actually is. I do, but let me, let me ask you another question related to that. Uh, you know, right, right now you're saying that the administration is very transparent about our motivation, our motives in Venezuela. And uh, that hasn't been the case in recent decades. But if you go back not too much further, 1950s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s during the Reagan administration, we were pretty honest about why we were toppling duly elected governments in Chile, Guatemala, uh, Nicaragua. We were pretty honest about it back then. But I think because of the public pressure, the the resistance that, that developed, uh, much of it faith-based, faith but not all of it, uh, it, it, it uh, exposed the lie about our previous administration's intents in Latin America. But now all of a sudden it's okay to be honest again, <laughs> which is on one level, I guess, refreshing, but it is deeply disturbing that the Trump administration thinks that this is okay somehow. 
Well, yeah, I think it's it's okay for some people to uh, to to speak forthright about it. But you know, most Americans, if you talk to them and why they think we need to get involved in Venezuela and the and the you know so-called liberals of of you know Bill Maher and NPR and MSNBC. They say, oh, we got to help the people. The people are starving. But they fail to mention that it's our sanctions that have largely made these people uh, mm. suffer to the extent they're suffering, you know, medicines and things like that. It is We have heavily sanctioned Venezuela, making it very difficult for them to have a functioning economy. Um, and, and Juan Guaido, the, the guy, the opposition leader, has said that he wants to bring the IMF back in, which we know how that works. You know, you can read Confessions of an Economic Hitman to learn how we uh, use the IMF and the World Bank to put these countries into economic debt. But to get back to your point about, you know, uh, back in the 80s and Iran-Contra and everything, um, you know, it, it's amazing that it's some of the same characters. Elliot Abrams was involved in Iran-Contra, and we were running... Uh, guns, and we got caught running guns to Nicaragua. And here we are with uh, a flight that last week McClatchy revealed was likely running weaponry to Venezuela. To, uh, a, a, a normally domestic uh, freight company was suddenly did 40 flights to Venezuela over the past month. And uh, the Venezuelan government discovered the flight and found, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it was up to the brim with, uh, with assault weapons. And wow. now those the same company that did that has connections to the the CIA uh, rendition program that uh, you know has been so lovely. Yeah. So um, you you mentioned Juan Guado and his his uh, credentials and his background. Uh, I mean, I, I would not be surprised to find out that he had spent some time studying at the School of the Americas, as it's called, or as uh, other folks who are more critical of it call it, the School of the Assassins. I don't know whether that's the case, but it would not surprise me one bit because a lot of the a lot of the uh, dictators that we install historically in Latin America have come through that that school in Bennington, Georgia. But um, well, you're 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 half right. I haven't heard anyone reveal School of the Americas yet, but he has training in basically our regime change labs of, of various mm -hmm. types. He went to George Washington University. He studied, studied under Professor Beres Batia, who was the former executive director of the IMF. So this is a, an IMF pawn who has been practicing for years uh, to, to be a part of this um, U.S. imperial power grab. Yeah. And, and, and when he was announced, a lot of, I mean, there's just so much people don't realize, even if you watch the so-called left-wing media, if you watch NPR and MSNBC, people don't seem to realize that when he announced that he was president, which he was not elected to, 20 per only 20% of Venezuela had even heard of him. <laughs> so imagine if someone in America that 20% had heard of, 80% had no idea who it was, just said, hey, guess what? I'm the president of the country now. Yeah, it you, would be you, like... Yeah. It'd be ridiculous. I mean, the person would likely be locked up. I think <laughs> either in prison or in a ward. Um, so if you Google, Juan, I just did this. If you Google Juan Guado, uh, again, the the, uh, the the media, the mainstream media, have overall been at least somewhat critical of President Trump, and, and thus they're labeled as fake news. But on this issue, they're just they're they're taking the bait and running with it. The first uh, mm -hmm. the first uh, lead that pops up on. Juan Guado is, quote, I'm ready to die for my country's future, Juan Guado tells Euronews. And the next one yeah. is, in Miami, Trump to urge Venezuelan military to support Guado as new leader. And the next one, this is the Washington Post, the accidental leader, how Juan Guado became the face of Venezuela's uprising. I mean, it's so, yeah. it's, it's like there's, there's, there's no subject, there's no objective thinking going on here at all. I love the idea of accidental. In fact, he ran around having meetings with, you know, our, our neocon, neoliberal uh, think tanks and the, the uh, Washington belligerati that, uh, that wants to bring down Venezuela. And that was just before he announced himself. And this is all a plan that I think Bolton thought would work easily, Bolton and whoever else, Pompeo. Uh, thought would work easily. You just announce someone else as the leader. Then America pressures their allies. So 30 countries have now announced that Guaido is the leader of Venezuela. However, 
you know, they act like, oh, it's now recognized. No, 30 countries is not actually that many out of 200 countries in the world. Right. And Maduro still has the support of most of the country. And at the end of the day, whether you love Maduro or hate him, this should be Venezuela, the Venezuelan people's decision. This should not be America right. pressuring them to, uh, to, you know, collapse their government. And who knows where that ends? That ends in some horrific uh, uh, civil war or something that kills uh, tens of thousands of people. And, you know, John Bolton's just sitting here chuckling, I guess. Yeah, that to me is the bottom line. Is whether, you, whether you like or dislike Maduro, uh, installing a tin pot dictator is, is just wrong on so many levels. And it sounds like yeah. uh, one of the big reasons is we want their oil. I mean, again, Venezuela is the, has the largest oil reserves, I believe, of any country in the world. Yep, the largest oil reserves, untapped oil reserves in the world, and a lot of people think the U.S. doesn't want oil anymore because we, uh, you know, we're so excited about our quote-unquote energy independence. But the truth is, fracking is not as profitable as they thought it'd be with oil prices low. So the fracking industry is collapsing, and the truth is, they want to keep uh, having easy oil. So in fact, we do want their oil, and John Bolton said as much on Fox News. And uh, but this, the, you know, this despite all of our media marching in lockstep. I mean, it, honestly, if you if you think the so-called resistance on this media disagrees with Trump, then why do they agree with him? Uh, you know, for you know, and on every word about Venezuela, it doesn't make any sense. But it doesn't seem like this ridiculous coup attempt is really working because zero uh, percent of the military has flipped to right. to uh, Juan Guaido's side. I would think that if. Uh Given the dislike of imperial powers to the north in Latin America, I would think that the U.S. overtly coming out in support of Guado could backfire. It's strategically, I mean, it's it's an it's an expression of hubris and and um, and and uh, assertion of our you know our our illusions of global dominance. But in reality, aren't isn't it going to backfire among the populace, like among most people? Well, you're getting to an important point, which it will backfire among the uh, poor and maybe middle class, largely the poor, uh, the downtrodden. But this is a a coup of the oligarchy. Um, Greg Palace wrote a great article about how this is uh, uh, something people are not talking about, is that this is also about race, because basically the oligarchy, which still exists in Venezuela, um, is is largely lighter skin, and you know, from uh, many of their ancestors or whatever are from uh, you know other countries. Right. And the who's in power right now, Maduro and Chavez, everything all represent the indigenous, the poor. And if you look at like the 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 rulers in the Maduro government, uh, the Chavista government, and you look at the Guaido group that want to take over, you can see a very distinct difference in skin tone because this is race, this is poverty, this is uh, class-based. And so this is a, a coup of the oligarchy. And basically they came to America and said, hey, will you, the rich oligarchy of America, support the formerly uh, rich oligarchy ruling class of Venezuela no brainer. to take down the poor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no-brainer, right? <laughs> so yeah. uh, why, why do – but with the U.S. now being the biggest oil-producing country in the world at the expense of our indigenous communities, our farmland, our property rights, and a lot of other casualties, why do we even need or want Venezuelan oil? Well, yeah, it's because the oil price has gone down, and so fracking is, uh, has become very difficult for them. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Some of it is the activists, you know. Uh, Sorry. Uh, bravo, bravo, Ed, Ed Fallon. <laughs> um, some, some of that is, is part of the reason that it's diff- more difficult for these fracking companies and these uh, gas companies to lay the pipeline and the infrastructure. But, you know, the, the most important thing is the price has gone down. So fracking, which is a very difficult way to get an energy source to crack open the earth and, and, and do that, is, is just not as profitable. And, and uh, so they want this easy oil that Venezuela sits on top of. Hmm. Um, and, of course, it's that, that, you know, they might not be doing this just for the oil, but it's really the three-pronged reason that they want to bring down. One is the pink tide, as it's called, of socialism 
in uh, in the Latin America, which some of those countries that were considered the pink tide are already uh, flipping the other way, thanks to our efforts and and the efforts of their oligarchy. We you know we tried to create a coup in Nicaragua just a few months back. Right. So this is not. This is not unheard of. And then the third one is, you know, dropping the dollar and being outside of the petrodollar, which is, uh, that's where a lot of our power comes from, is the petrodollar. One last question. What's the smart money say on how this is going to turn out? What do you think? Well, a lot of the people I've been reading say that it's just not happening the way Bolton and Pompeo were hoping. Uh, They really thought that if you just announced this and you increase the sanctions and the people are having a difficult time, that the military would switch. But, you know, a lot of the military and, and the people in the country, you know, they remember the times under the, uh, the ruling elite oligarchy that, uh, that was not good for them. So they may have difficulty finding certain foodstuffs. And by the way, most reports I hear is not that they're starving. They just there's certain items that are tough to get in Venezuela because those are run by corporations that support the uh, you know the previous oligarchy. But uh, it, and so it doesn't seem like it's uh, this coup is really working out. But time will tell. I know the U.S. is not going to back off on their pressure, but I'd love to see the American people wake up to the actual yeah. facts on the ground there. Well, I appreciate you speaking up about it, and we'll do our part to get the word out here because again the. Truth is uh, what people need to know. So, again, uh, Lee Camp, folks, thanks for joining us, Lee. And if folks want to... Uh, Absolutely, and, I, and I'm at LeeCamp.com. Yeah, LeeCamp.com, and you've got a great uh, pot, uh, great uh, program that's on uh, that's available. You can subscribe to it. It's called Redacted Tonight. And people can follow you on Facebook and elsewhere, I believe, to the usual social media network. Yeah, and the, and the new comedy special is LeeCampComedySpecial.com. All right. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, folks, when we come back from a short break here, we're going to talk about Trump's wall at the border and the wall that really ought to be torn down that's already built. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market, serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. Bold Iowa was launched in 2016 to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline and continues to support the landowners who filed lawsuits against the abuse of eminent domain to build that pipeline. Bold Iowa's mission is to build rural-urban coalitions to fight climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, protect Iowa's soil, air, and water, and support non-industrial renewable energy systems. For more information, visit boldiowa.com, not .org.com. That's boldiowa.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, as we broadcast from the snowy cultural and culinary crossroads of America, Des Moines, Iowa. We are on track, by the way, to 
If uh, the predictions come true for Tuesday's snowfall, we will set a record for the most snow in a 40-day period. So, compliments of the polar vortex. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, compliments of climate change. Again, it's not, you know, we have big storms in the Midwest, obviously, but all the things that are happening that are unique. Just in the past year, the, the coldest April on record, followed by the third warmest May on record, followed by either the wettest or one of the wettest um, August, September, October periods, followed by an very cold November and a very warm December and a incredibly cold and snowy January and February. You know, it's the ups and downs. It's the intensity of the storms that matter. And, you know, when you've got Donald Trump saying, we could use a little global warming, something's wrong with the guy. You know, uh, the science is really clear on this. Science is clear on this. And logic and evidence are also clear that we don't need a wall on the U.S. border. And President Trump's insistence on calling for a national emergency because he didn't get all the money he wanted. You know, that's how politics works. I can tell you story after story of seeing how this happens in the legislature. It's uh, described sometimes as making sausage is not very pretty. And in the end, you never get everything you want. But you get something done because you're willing to compromise. So Trump managed to accomplish a compromise. And he he supported it. But then, of course, since it wasn't what he really wanted, he comes back with an executive order declaring a state of emergency, a national emergency, because of uh, drugs coming across our border, because of gangs coming across our border. But when you look at what's really coming across the border, there's no – most drugs are coming in, most illegal drugs are coming in through the main ports of entry, not in places where we don't have – and he, where he wants to build a wall. And the gang thing, come on, that's, it's not happening. The evidence is all there. From all this, all, every reliable source indicates that those are basically lies. So what is coming across the border that constitutes a national emergency? Well, less uh, immigrants from Mexico than there used to be, and a lot of immigrants from Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And what is the face of these immigrants? Are these... Um, Young men smuggling drugs with calves the size of cantaloupes, to quote uh, Congressman Steve King. Uh, no, they're mostly women and children. They're women and children fleeing political violence, uh, economic devastation, uh, gang, gang violence. And um, they're coming here not for the weather. <laughs> uh, yeah, how many people coming – how many people who live in a, in a basically a, you know, a semi or tropical paradise – would come to an Iowa win winter. I mean, I, I love it here because I love the four seasons. I love the contrast, the drama. Uh, I like being able to throw snowballs at people once in a while. So be, be warned. If you see me out there and the snow's a little, little wet, be careful. But I, most people don't gravitate to this if they're not used to it. You know, I'm used to it. We're used to it here in the Midwest. We like this. But it's not most people's cup of tea. So, yeah, President Trump is basically lying about this. <clears throat> He, he's got to know he's lying unless he's totally so delusional that he's convinced himself that somehow he's telling the truth. So his plan, of course, is to ignore, ignore the will of Congress and hope that he knows he's going to get sued. Uh, and he, he says it'll probably go to the Supreme Court. And he's basically saying, but because I've stacked the Supreme Court, I'll win there. We'll see if that happens. This is, in the meantime, a great full employment opportunity for lawyers. And um, that includes some lawyers from California because uh, Governor Gavin Newsom and uh, uh, Attorney General Xavier Becerra, the California Attorney General, are planning to, on, on behalf of California, they're going to sue the Trump administration because of its declaration of the need for a national emergency. Again, California is one of the states most uh, directly affected by the border wall. Uh, the state is affected. And... The face of the people who are affected most immediately on our side of the border are the landowners who would have their land taken forcibly through eminent domain to build a wall that is based on a lie. So, you know, we, we had our fights here in Iowa against the abuse of eminent domain to build the Dakota Access Pipeline. There have been other fights in the past regarding eminent domain. This is an interesting one because it's, um, <laughs> you know— President Trump, when he was campaigning, 
made it really clear that he supported the use of eminent domain. He talked about using it to build some of his, um, his, uh, his projects. And it was clear they had no empathy with the farmers and landowners and others who would have their land taken for, in, this, in the case of Iowa, a private pipeline company. You know, in the case of the wall, yeah, a wall owned by the American taxpayers, but one that is built on a lie. So what did I mean earlier when I said that I think we ought to, uh, we ought to tear down a wall that already exists? And that's this, this wall of denial about climate change. You know, back to the polar vortex, back to all the, um, all the uh, things that are happening. We're going to talk about a very disturbing uh, development in climate uh, in the next segment regarding insects. But the, um, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not rev- you, cannot, you cannot say that it's not happening anymore. You just can't say that. You talk to any farmer or landowner in Iowa, they know what's happening. Some are still slow to embrace that it is, it, that is, that is that's anthropogenic. Sorry, stumbled over the seven-syllable word. Uh, oh, anthropogenic. Five syllables. Okay, so I exaggerated. I pulled a trump. Sorry. You know, some are still arguing over whether or not it's caused by human activity. There we go. But that's, that, that, that percentage is getting smaller and smaller. I saw recently that um, the increase in the number of Republican voters who accept that climate change is happening, is man-made, and is urgent is up 7%. That's significant. And yet the leadership of the Republican Party, again, the leadership bought and paid for by, by big oil money. And again, there are plenty of Democrats who fit that description as well. This is a bipartisan problem. The, the difference is that the Republican Party is still officially in denial because their hands are deeper in the, 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 the pot of money from big oil. On the Democratic side, yeah, there's plenty of big money from the oil industry and Wall Street in there. But they at least ostensibly agree that climate change is a problem and needs an immediate it needs immediate attention. The um, the lack of real urgency that I sense from Democratic politicians in general is disturbing. That's another conversation. The um, the bottom line here is that the Trump administration, with the help of the Republican Party in general and the vast sum of money from oil industries, oil interests that come into it has built this wall. This, this, they've caused this wall to form up between them and reality. And it is causing us great harm, harm to the point where we, uh, we, we, our future, as this civilization that we've created, is in jeopardy. Our future on this planet is in jeopardy because of this ignorance, because of this wall of denial that has been erected. I say we tear down that wall, Mr. President. Uh, you know... Trump says he's a big man, and I don't doubt him. Anybody who can do what he did and fire all the people he fired and build all the stuff that he built, got to be a big man. Well, you know what? A big man knows when he has to say, oh, I was wrong. I made a mistake. So, Mr. Trump, President Trump, consider that. Consider saying, you know, I was wrong on a couple things. And we'll start with climate change because that's more – that's really urgent. That's an immediate crisis. And, yeah – I was wrong on that. We'll tear down that wall of denial, and we're going to get to work on that right now. I'd love to see that happen. I'm not holding my breath, but it doesn't hurt for us to continue to put the pressure on. Ed Fallon with you folks here on the Fallon Forum. Back in a minute with more conversation. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. That's Brother Trucker. That's their tune downtown. And we're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Thanks to the stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can always hear the show on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. Uh, take a second here to thank our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've got a catering service as well. Thanks also to Community CPA and Associates. Community CPA has offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. And it's that time of the year, folks, where you need to be thinking about your taxes. So give Yingsa, the founder and director of Community CPA, a shout. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant on East 5th and Walnut, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and producers even in February. 
Thanks also to Sargent's Garage at 6th and College, north of the uh, down north of downtown Des Moines. That's Sargent's Garage. And thanks to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Your insurance needs under one roof. Uh, no appointment needed. Give Diversity Insurance a shout or just stop on by. All right, thanks for uh, tuning in to today's program, folks. Remember, this is uh, one of the rare alternatives to the crazy right-wing talk you'll hear uh, that dominates the uh, commercial airwaves. Uh, we try to you know, we, we try to provide a balance and also try to be fair. Um, I frequently have people on the show that uh, may not agree with me, and I like that. I like to have that healthy kind of conversation. You won't see Rush Limbaugh ever do that. Okay, so... Um, Here's an issue that brings together people from both sides of the political conversation, the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. Again, uh, environmentalists strongly opposed to it because of the impact on climate change, uh, the potential threat to our water. A lot of other folks, including me, are uh, concerned about the impact on property rights and the impact on soil, uh, on topsoil, on tiling, all, all these other things that really matter to uh, someone trying to farm for a living. And so... Um, a lawsuit was filed by Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company of the pipeline uh, company, Dakota Access. They filed a lawsuit a couple years back. I think it was August of 2017, I believe, alleging basically racketeering. <laughs> they, they, were, they were coming after uh, a whole bunch of organizations. They named Greenpeace as the uh, lead organization they were coming after, after, which was fascinating to me because – Greenpeace had very little to do with the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, largely, the, that fight was led by Iowa, Iowa farmers and landowners, environmentalists, uh, and Native people here in Iowa, and especially especially up in North Dakota. Uh, those were the groups and individuals uh, primarily fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. So it was interesting to me that Dakota Access and Energy Transfer Partners decided to sue Greenpeace. Well, it made sense because they wanted to go after the money. They know that Bold Iowa or uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe or Iowa CCI or other groups don't have a lot of money. So they go after the big guy, even though they aren't that involved. And they, um, they want $900 million. They claim that they were hurt really bad. And I don't, I don't doubt that they were hurt financially. And um, I, I think people make no apology for that because trying to defend your land, your water, your property rights, the climate, uh, sure, if you, can, if you can slow down a company that wants to roll, roll over everybody and everything, yeah, and that costs them some money, so be, that, that should be regarded by energy transfer as the cost of doing business. Anyway, they sued. Uh, Bold Iowa was mentioned in the lawsuit. I, I will tell you, my, my writings specifically were cited in the lawsuit. So this is not just a victory for Greenpeace, but for a lot of organizations and for yours truly, because um, the uh, a court in North Dakota, a federal judge, uh, just this past week, uh, dismissed the dismissed the case with prejudice, and that means, of course, that energy transfer can't come back and try to do this again, because it became clear that this was what's called a slap suit, um, a lawsuit intended simply to intimidate. Uh, you know, throw a lot of money, a lot of legal power, and you'll silence the opposition. They won't come back and do this again. I am almost certain that energy transfer partners never thought they would win this case, and they're they're not upset about the outcome. They knew they knew this was what was going to happen, but in the meantime, they had a lot of folks worried about it, and of course, Greenpeace and possibly some of the other organizations spent a lot of money fighting it in the courts. So. Even though this is a victory for the people opposed to the pipeline and ostensibly for Greenpeace since they were the first group named, it's also unfortunately a bit of a victory for energy transfer partners because, you know, they, 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 they were able to run up some costs and waste time and effort. But the, the most – possibly the best thing about this ruling – is the uh, fact that it is issued without with, with prejudice, meaning, again, they can't come back and do this again because the court saw through this. Even though our federal courts are becoming increasingly populated by the extreme edge of the judicial spectrum, uh, you know, even though that's happening, we're still seeing rulings that, for the most part, make sense and come down on the side of fairness and intelligence. That's encouraging. So 
I, I don't um I don't quite know how this is going to all play out over the long haul because I, I don't I don't doubt that energy transfer partners and other big oil and fossil fuel companies will try to find ways of silencing dissent through the courts. I have no doubt that'll happen. But the fact that um that previously the same again the the the, the three first groups that are mentioned in the case are Greenpeace, Earth First, and Banktrack. And Bankjack was in there because they were encouraging people to divest. They were encouraging banks and other financial institutions to divest from fossil fuel infrastructure. And that was somehow regarded by energy transfer as a, a racketeering scandal. <laughs> so, uh, which is crazy. And the court recognized that. So that's the uh, the most important thing about this is that. Uh, the that that hopefully the court's strong ruling will convince these companies not to try to do these slap suits in the future. We'll see. I don't know whether that'll actually happen or not because again they have deep pockets, and they have clever attorneys, and they have then they pay them incredible amounts of money. And some people again will do anything for money. So we'll see what happens. Uh, the what Energy Transfer Partners spokesperson is saying, Lisa Dillinger. Coleman, rather, Lisa Dillinger Coleman, was saying that the company is now reviewing its options. Uh, she says, quote, we are disappointed, but because the judge dismissed the state claims without deciding their merits, we intend to assess our options and make a decision shortly on next steps. I don't I don't know whether the court's going to respond favorably to that, because my impression is, of course, that, look, you're done. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Uh, again, Dakota Access and energy transfer are, are, in, are in the courts in a lot of places in a lot of ways. They're still in the courts in Nova, in, in Nova Scotia, in North Dakota. They're in the courts here in Iowa with the lawsuit filed by the Sierra Club and nine landowners. And there are other smaller cases here in Iowa uh, that involve landowners who are trying to recoup costs relevant to destruction of crops, um, inadequate compensation for their property loss, uh, damages to topsoil, damages to tile, there's a bunch of those other little suits still out there. So, you know, I, you know the bottom line is Energy Transfer Partners has incredibly deep pockets. Uh, they've gotten incredibly rich off of subsidized fracked oil. And um, they can afford to do this. But we'll see. As, as the courts tighten the definition of what's allowed, maybe that will limit their opportunities for harassing people who are opposed to these pipelines. Anyway, we'll see where that goes. Uh, I'm sure we'll know more soon in some of these cases in Iowa. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about grave concerns about the insect population across the world in steep decline. We'll be back in a few minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. 
You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns. Someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Forum. You know, when folks express concern about climate change, it's usually that the storms are going to be stronger, uh, flooding is going to be more of a problem, sea level rise is going to inundate coastal cities and island nations, fires are going to burn down the west or torch an entire continent in the case of Australia. And those are all legitimate concerns, but you know some of the the smaller the the smaller issues that well not they're not smaller issues at all they're issues that aren't as as front and center because we don't see them as as dramatically as we see a fire or a flood or a hurricane or a tornado but one of the gravest concerns that just received some additional um news play last week is the global decline of insects it's being referred to by some as an insect apocalypse and it's of, um, of serious concern. So a couple facts about insects I did not know. There are 30 million insect species in the world. Uh, that's an estimate because it's, it's impossible to count them all. But that's, a clo- that's an estimate, best we can come up with. 30 million species. And if you were to, let's see, what are there, 7.6 billion people on the planet? If you were to weigh all of humanity, and again, in some parts of the world, like the U.S., we go, we, 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 weigh, we weigh more than people in some other parts of the world. If you were to weigh all of humanity, insects, again, if you could put them all together into and weigh them all, would outweigh humanity by a factor of 17. There's a lot of bugs out there. And, you know, when I joke with people, well, how do you feel about there being less bugs? Most people are, oh, that's great. You know, who wants, who wants houseflies bugging you? Who wants, uh, who wants sting bugs Swimming around your bath, bathtub. Or um, mosquitoes or ticks. I write about ticks in my book. Horrible experience with ticks on the Great March for Climate Action. So, yeah, why do we not want to see some of those creatures gone? If, if climate change is taking them out, more power to climate change. Well, it's not, that, it's not that simple. And it's not good because bugs do a lot of really, really important things. The most obvious thing that bugs do that are really, is really important is pollination of flowers and food crops. Uh, so many of our crops depend on pollination. And uh, those, those creatures, butterflies, moths, bees, uh, dung beetles, and crickets as well, they are all declining at uh, huge rates. 53% of the population of those species have seen declining population numbers. And, and you know, think of it this way. The very bottom of the food chain is what? Plants. And what eats plants? Well, we all eat plants, uh, except maybe the pure carnivores of the world, um, like cats and dogs and my friend Brian. But, um, you know, most, most, most life forms eat some plants. And, of course, bugs eat a lot of plants. I wish, they, in fact, they would eat less plants in my garden sometimes. But the, um, the bottom line is uh, something eats them, especially like talking about crickets and beetles and grasshoppers, things like that, those are insects, cicadas, those are insects that uh, other life forms, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians rely heavily on. And when you start seeing that element of the food chain disappear, it's going to mean problems for everything else, including, wait for it, homo sapiens. Yes, this affects us as well. A world devoid of bugs are not is not a good place to be if you're any other life form at all. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, the uh, this was a review done recently, uh, published in Biological Conservation. It's uh, the uh, the authors of that review write quote the pace of modern insect extinction surpasses that of vertebrates by a large margin. Apparently, this is uh, this is the biggest. Um, 
the decline in insect populations we've had since what the Permian age, I believe. I remember reading that somewhere. So it's um the state of insect biodiversity, the report says, is dreadful. Uh, the insect biomass, the estimated weight of all insects, the estimated weight of all insects on Earth combined, is dropping by an estimated 2.5 percent every year. Okay, so if you drop 2.5 percent of your weight every year, you know it doesn't take long to get to the point where you're not a viable population anymore. This is a big problem, and I, you know, I, everything is coming together right now to make it clear to any thinking person that we have we have an unprecedented problem on our hands it is a crisis of historic proportions it is a crisis unprecedented in our species and there are there are signs everywhere and again when you start <clears throat> when you start uh, you know thinking about it i mean i I have no. I, I have noticed. I, I have noticed there are bugs in my garden that I don't want there that are still doing very, very well, <laughs> that I have to guard against. But I've also noticed that um, there are plenty of bugs that seem to be less, you know, less available than they used to be. Butterflies being the most obvious. I remember when we walked across the country on the Great March for Climate Action. I was, I was disturbed. All of us were disturbed at how few butterflies we saw. And so, um. It gives me encouragement that uh, that people are beginning to understand that we've got a huge problem. But what concerns me is that the the concern is not translating into action. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about this. Uh, we have one more segment coming up for folks who are listening on our community-owned stations, and I'm going to talk more about that when we um, when we come back about the um, about the, uh, the the level of panic that is now being advised by, for example, the New York Times. And again. You look at the weather and you think, okay, well, you know, a hurricane, bad deal. Um, but I live in I live in Iowa. What do I care? Or, you know, polar vortex sounds horrible. But well, I live in California. What do I care? So, um, so the uh, you know the, um, the 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 problem is that uh, we think we we don't see the big picture. And maybe with if we can start understanding the importance of insects, particularly pollinators then maybe that'll help us grasp the big picture and help us realize how important it is that we react immediately and that we respond aggressively, uh, choosing our own behavior more carefully and putting pressure on those in public office at the local, state, federal level, both parties, to take this crisis seriously, to basically do what we're going to talk about in the next segment and panic, you know, Panic is a bad thing if you're running away from Godzilla and screaming and he's crushing all your cities. I know that's um that that's a that's a that's that's a a, a some cinematic reference, but the um the uh you know the bottom line is we have a big world of hurt coming away and we've got to do something. Folks there, you're listening to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in. Ed Fallon, your host here, broadcasting from Lorena, twelve sixty AM. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, Be reviewing an article in the New York Times by David Wallace-Wells. He's the author of a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. And I'm, I'm glad to see more people stepping forward to speak truth about climate change. You know, I'm reminded of the uh, biblical prophets who prophesied about the uh, devastation coming at the hands of the Syria, uh, Assyria or Babylonia. Uh, and uh, those prophets always had a hard road to hoe. It was always tough for them to convince anybody to pay attention to them. And, you know, I feel like it's the same. We've had the same problem here. There have been a handful of people, you know, myself included. I mean, when I say a handful, it's been a lot of us, but not not that many overall. And if you go back into the 70s and 80s, when the first climate warnings were being issued by scientists, well, they were that was very much a lonely place. That was that was before I got engaged on this this, this problem. 
But uh, it's starting to get to the point where, you know, if we'd done more earlier, we might have less of a, uh, a catastrophe on our hands, but we have a huge problem coming our way. And Wallace Wells writes uh, about, uh, he calls it the age of climate panic. Uh, we've now entered the age of climate panic, and he thinks that's probably a good thing. Again, panic doesn't work real well when you run around screaming and saying, oh my gosh, the world's falling, the world's falling, the sky's falling, and and you don't do anything. If you get if you get so stricken with fear that you do nothing, then yeah, we have a problem. But Wells may be right. He says that that um, maybe the fear that people are starting to realize they should have because of climate change might actually inspire them and collectively our government, our businesses, our academic institutions. It might actually inspire them to take the action that we should have taken 50 years ago. Uh, but hopefully we take it before it's too late. So, um, you know, again, we're seeing, I talked about insects. Uh, that's something we don't really see, uh, but it's happening. We, nothing we don't see, for example. You know, we read about it, but reading about it, you're reading about, for example, the the cavern the size of almost as big as Manhattan Island under the Thwaites Glacier in the Antarctica. You know, we read about that and we say, wow, that's huge. That's a problem. And we read that when that glacier melts, because in part because that cavity is, is gradually eroding the glacier and it's going to melt. And when it does, they estimate there's a two-foot sea level rise built into just that glacier melting. So you can't see that. Intellectually, you can say, okay, that's a problem. Like intellectually, we can say, okay, the decline of insects is a problem. But maybe the growing number of of climate of, of weather events related to climate change is what's really going to do it. And when I say weather events, I include the heat wave uh, and the dryness that led to the um, the incredible wildfire season in California, the most destructive wildfire season in California's history. And again, not just in California, but in many of the West, most of the Western states. Um, hurricanes, of course, uh, the ones, uh, the Maria and, and uh, the other hurricanes here, and also the Pacific hurricanes that forced uh, 3 million people in China to flee and that wiped away almost all of Hawaii's East Island. So, um, you know, climate panic is not a bad thing. If we get to that point, maybe we'll start doing something about it. Right now, again, I talked earlier about the, you know, the Trump administration's wall of climate denial. But even among those of us who understand the problem intellectually, it doesn't seem that we've got to the point where we're willing to do what it takes to try to uh, address the crisis. You know, we, we aren't panicking enough, according to Wells. So, again, he re references the uh, UN uh, Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report last October that uh, he, uh, he refers to as, and some others refer to it as, the Doomsday Report. Um, quote, a deafening, piercing smoke alarm going off in the kitchen, as one UN official described it. Um, that report, of course, details climate effects at 1.5 degrees Celsius increase, and also what happens when the world warms um, by 2 degrees Celsius. You know, and there's a difference. There's a huge difference, and it's a huge problem if it gets to two degrees. Uh, it's it's a big enough problem, and we're we're at a, we're at enough risk with it hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius, which again is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, as uh, as Wallace Wells points out, you know, scientists have been aware of this for a while. They've talked about it. Our, you know, our former uh, our, our guy with Iowa connections, uh, former NASA uh, uh, director uh, James Hansen, has been talking about this for decades. Um, but as uh, Wells Wallace Wallace Wells rather points out, quote: "There were few things with a worse reputation than alarmism among those studying climate change. We didn't want to get alarmed. We didn't want to. We didn't want to get people too concerned. And I, I've seen that problem with." A lot of the nonprofit groups that work on climate, they don't, they don't want people to feel so despondent that they don't get involved. And yet that's disingenuous. And it's one reason I've admired the climate mobilization, because they speak truth to the problem. And 
you know, as 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 Wallace Wells is pointing out, the, the truth right now indicates that we probably should be panicking, and that maybe if the fear that inspires that panic also leads to individual and concerted action, we might be able to pull through this. <laughs> we might. Um, yeah, Hanson again, amazing, amazing uh, spokesperson. I mean, talk about a prophet. You know, again, I, I referenced the biblical prophets earlier who were never treated real well, were totally ostracized, and uh, they, they must have had a horrible life. I think about poor old Amos, who was a farmer. He, pull, he was pulled out of farming to go testify and uh, was not well received. I think about Jeremiah, who, was, uh, who couldn't get his point across about the impending disaster facing Israel. And so he wore uh, a, a, a wooden uh, yoke around his neck to symbolize the slavery that was that was going to happen to the the Hebrew people if they didn't change their ways and respond to the crisis. And so when the temple prophet mocked him and broke that wooden yoke, what did Jeremiah do? Came back with a iron yoke. Take that. <laughs> it was a very powerful statement, a statement that has lived through thousands of years. And um, I admire Hansen because he was testifying about global warming, about climate change, way before anyone thought it was anything but extremism and alarmism. I mean, back in 1988, he, uh, he spoke before Congress. And, um, you know, and he chastised, according to this, this article by Wells, this, this is a good comment, Wells writes, he chastised, Hansen chastised his colleagues for their scientific reticence and for editing their own observations so conscientiously that they failed to communicate how dire the threat actually was. You know, and, and yeah, I would say he's probably right about that. The scientists probably said, well, we can't be too alarmist, so let's, model, let's, let's tone this down a little bit. But in some cases, I know this, they did that because there was political pressure to do it. Because, you know, it, it, politicians do very well when they say, you know, we've got a problem and I'm going to make it better. But when they say, we've got a problem so bad that all of us are responsible for that we should be panicking right now, that that's not quite as strong of a political uh, sales pitch uh, as what I said earlier. <laughs> so um, what else does, uh, does Wallace Wells say? He says, in 2018, scientific circumspection began to change. This is just two years ago, or last year. Perhaps because all the extreme weather wouldn't permit it not to. Some scientists even began embracing alarmism, particularly with that UN report from last October. The research it summarized was not new, and temperatures beyond 2 degrees Celsius were not even discussed, though warming on that scale is where we are headed. And I might insert there that we're actually headed more toward 4 degrees Celsius, which it's unthinkable. We don't survive on this planet if we have 4 degrees Celsius warming. We may not survive with 2 degrees. With 1.5 degrees it's it's still a it's still a crapshoot. So Wallace Wells goes on to say the report by these hundred scientists around the world quote did not address any of the scarier possibilities for warming. It did offer a new form of permission to the world's scientists. The thing that was new was the message: it is okay finally to freak out, even reasonable to freak out. So as Wallace Wells says, quote, this to me is progress. Panic might seem counterproductive, but we're at a point where alarmism and catastrophic thinking are valuable for several reasons. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a worthwhile read, folks. And, um, you know, his book, I have not seen his book yet, but uh, it sounds like it's also a worthwhile read. But again, I would say, you know, don't spend too much time reading. And I'm saying that as an author who just wrote a book, and of course I want you to read my book. But um, we, 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 have to be, we have to be doing everything we can right now. And that, and that, again, at the individual level, you know, figure out how you can reduce your carbon footprint to the point where it's no longer as significant as it has been, whether it's, you know, finding other ways to get around by bike or, or, uh, or bus or train or walking, um, and, and finding ways of producing some of your own food as well. And... Uh, Part of it is, you know, I think more and more of, a, more and more of us are going to have to be doing that 
and you can't just uh, if the if the um, organic nutrient hits the fan really hard and really fast, you won't be able to do that with a snap. You know, you can't just take a bunch of clay in your backyard and turn it into a productive garden. That takes some time. It takes effort. It takes um, it takes a number of seasons <laughs> of uh, removing the worst of the clay and bringing in good topsoil and enriching it with compost uh, and, and maybe pruning enough trees where you uh, have, have the sunlight you need. It takes time, effort. And so preparing for that is, is, you know, now is a good time to prepare for that. And again, beyond all the important things we can do individually, the most important thing we can do is collective action of getting our, getting our politicians and our business leaders and our academic leaders to wake up and, our, and the media, gosh, the media. How complicit has the media been in this? You know, I ended my subscription to the Des Moines Register last year because, as I wrote to them, I'm tired of you guys ignoring the climate crisis. Interestingly, the day after I ended my subscription, they had a nice front-page story about climate. But you don't, it's a, you don't, you don't treat a crisis with an occasional front-page story every month or two. That, you, that's... Clearly, you don't regard that as a crisis. Clearly, the media is not panicking. They need to. We all need to. And again, part of our role can be to pressure these leading institutions, whether they be in the media, academia, the business community, or especially our politicians. We, we need to be pressuring them to panic, to respond with the urgency that the crisis demands. That's up to us. And no one else is going to do it. And yeah, even if you do it yourself individually, it's so, as Gandhi said, every action you take, even if it's just you doing it, it's so important that you do it. But the truth is right now, I don't think we're going to be acting alone much longer. More and more people are jumping on board, understanding that we have a crisis and that, yeah, it's okay to panic. Let's move forward on it as soon as possible, as, as aggressively as possible. Thanks, folks. You've been listening to the Fallon Forum with Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa.